I was in this tank and probably about 40 minutes in, for whatever reason, I started imagining this, this obelisk, right? And for whatever reason, I imagined all of my stress, all of my resistance to the current moment, every single negative thing in my life as this obelisk. And then I imagined myself crushing it and into dust and blowing it away. It's almost like sharing a video of someone being killed was so normalized that it, it took away from the humanness of it all. And so social media normalizes a lot of things. It can be very triggering. Like something that happens to me a lot is I'm like going over lecture material for a class. My phone is right next to it. And I'll see a single notification just in the peripheral of my vision. And instantly, like my mind instantly just goes straight to it. It's, it's really hard. And I have to make a like, constant mental effort to make sure to not turn towards my phone. And I'm already draining half of my attention just to not attend to my, it's just a big difficulty to focus on what's at hand when you have uh, so much stimuli in the background. I kind of have these screw it days where I just say, I am, I'm going to like binge watch something, even though I have um, emails to respond to, or um, I'm going to eat that brownie, even though I know I want to eat healthy and cut down on sugar. Um, I think there are times I kind of think of it as self-care. Uh, before we begin the podcast, an iteration of our fundamental goals. Respect, equity of voice, transparency, and truth. The structure of this podcast will be a gently guided conversation. To think a Socratic, but no grades and poor stress. Uh, this specific podcast is covering mental health. We will briefly discuss kind of pre-lockdown and during lockdown mental health as well transitions kind of in the areas of both stigma, so, so self-stigma, public stigma, institutional stigma, as well as factors of current mental health, how they've changed. For example, some will be social media, lockdown isolation, overload of stimuli, etc. We'll briefly cover resources at our school and non-cliche things you can do to help yourself that you won't find in a typical school advisory. Then after that, we'll follow up with a brief uh, discussion where we'll go over some table topics as well as kind of discuss some things that we find really interesting. And yeah, that's more or less the whole uh, gist of the podcast. Now, to elaborate on our prior fundamental goals, this will be a nuanced discussion where ideology is not judged and raw honesty is appreciated. Mistakes are corrected and forgiven. Ideas should not be seen as painful, disrespectful, or as creating an unsafe space. You have to approach ideas from a respectful, nuanced way. Then you're able to dismantle unsafe ideas, whether it be hate or prejudice or something of that caliber, or promoting a unique voice and standpoint. For these type of podcasts, we're hoping to include more faculty and staff because often when you're criticizing faculty, you're really criticizing the administration. And faculties at universities and schools are often those who possess their deepest truths and their voices should be promoted. According to a Gallup poll, 61% of students nationally at all colleges are afraid of sharing their true opinions. I think while people are pushing for this on all college campuses, why not cultivate the same environment of freedom here on our campus? It's vital for humans to be able to speak imprecisely and not to make mistakes and uh, to kind of be accepted when they make mistakes and it's okay, and to be seen as acceptable, to not be as articulate as they may want to be. So being imprecise, devising theories, impromptu, and having messy or sloppy trains of thought are all essential for being able to innovate, uh, progress, and kind of exercise creativity. So we, we don't want to choke any of that. So hopefully this podcast serves as a reminder. Now, with that out of the way, I'm hoping to delve into the podcast 
first with um, a brief introduction of all our participants. So my name is Pranav. I'll be moderating this podcast. I'm a current senior at Cupertino High School. I've always been interested in cognitive science. Um, Mrs. Solomon, would you like to start by introducing yourself? Yes, I'm Denise Salen, and I am a marriage and family therapist. I've been at Cupertino High School for um, about 15 or 16 years now, and um, my role is a school-based therapist, and I provide counseling support to students. Hi, uh, I'm Amrita Vaidyam. I'm a current senior at Cupertino High, and I'm looking into going into the field of forensic psychiatry. It's something that interests me a lot, and um, I plan to major in psychology or neuroscience, or maybe say, you know what, let's do both. Um, my name is Roshan. I am a freshman at UC Berkeley, and I am double majoring in cognitive science and CS. Uh, my name is Ben Ham. I'm a freshman at University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm majoring in, double majoring in neurobiology and computer science. And I want to use both those to work on brain scanners or brain-computer interfaces to understand more about the brain and use it for applications in mental health. Um, I've meditated for over a year, a year and I've experimented with other things too. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts on these topics, pretty much anything to do with the brain. Um, so yeah. Fantastic. So I'm really excited to see where this goes. So let's start off with kind of the first topic. So kind of the transition of mental health from pre-lockdown to during lockdown, and kind of some factors that influenced it particularly over the past couple of years. According to a study published in KFF.org, one out of 10 adults reported these symptoms from January to June, 2019. Difficulty sleeping, which is 30% increase, ER difficulty eating, 32% increase, increases in alcohol or substance use, 12% worsening chronic conditions, 12%. And four out of 10 adults during the pandemic reported these symptoms of anxiety or depressive order, depressive disorder, sorry, which is up from about one in 10 um, from prior to the pandemic. I think some of the factors contributing to this just from kind of personal research is that many of the things people look forward to for stability and security have some evaporated of the past few years. We don't quite trust medicine, large private institutions, government, and essentially most aspects of organized religion and modern uh, liberalism cannot be trusted, at least to an extent. There is always you know, a degree of trust in functional institutions. So now all of our rules of thumb and decision-making shortcuts are slowly dissolving. So our type one processes and intuition, which is what uh, governs most of our critical thinking, sometimes proves false at no fault of our own. And we're forced to either give up or use our much more difficult type two thinking. The kind of a distinction between type one and type two, think when I ask two plus two, you often will immediately um, respond four. Versus if I ask for 16 times 27, that requires you to think most of the time. And that's an example of type one versus type two thinking. This is just an example of kind of intuition versus deeper critical thinking. So humans fundamentally need a couple of things. Of course, everyone's needs are different and it would be rash to say that this is, well, this kind of governs everyone's needs and wants, but there's a couple of things that people need, right? Healing, things that refresh you, that give you life or make you feel alive and touch with the world around you. Inspiration, something to make you motivated while keeping you grounded, something that kind of helps you answer the three questions. Why are we here? What does it all mean? And what role do I play as an individual? And number three, kind of connection. So this is the fundamental social element that all humans crave as social animals. So before we kind of delve into a conversation, I was hoping, does anyone have any other factors they believe might have contributed to changes in kind of mental health uh, you know, during the lockdown, or do they have any thoughts that might build on anything that I've mentioned? 
I think you, I think you nailed most of it. Um, but I feel like, like a lot of it, yeah, a lot of what you said, like you nailed most of it because like, we all know as soon as lockdown started, it's like, I can't see this person. I can't see that person. Um, I, I don't want to put my grandparents in the hospital. I just like, I, I need to sort of have all my responsibilities in one place. I need to make sure my family members are safe, but at the same time, we crave so much emotional support and so much like attention to just like function as humans. You know, it's not just like to function as humans. We don't only need food and water and shelter. We do need love. And it's extremely hard to receive love being so far away from people who have made you feel like that. Yeah, exactly. Like we still hold all of the evolutionary traits and like mechanisms in our brains that were um, back when we were in the jungle and in herds going around hunting people, right? So just because we can adapt to the society that we're currently in doesn't mean that they're not inherent changes because our biology is not necessarily built for us being in front of screens and all of that. And all these changes are happening at a very fast pace with, to be honest, not much foresight by the companies who will do this to make a profit. Yeah, and when you, when you said make a profit, the first thing that jumped in my head was, you know how every single ad that you see in past March 2020 is, these are difficult times. These are very difficult times and we're here to support you. But they take that and they make money off of that ad. And I think it's um, also a very sad situation because a lot of lockdown, like, like speaking on the serious side of things or the severe side of things, you know, there are thousands of people for a lack of better phrasing that are, are, are dying and you can't even see your loved ones. You can't attend their funerals. You can't even hug your loved ones when they're taking their last breath. And I remember seeing a post a few months ago about like um, a family that really, really wanted to hug each other and like see each other for like the last time and had been through so much hardship. And they like put up these plastic covers just to be able to hug one another. Like that is how much we crave it in our lives. So I definitely agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything that's been said so far. Um, Mrs. Holland, do you kind of have any thoughts, especially with maybe um, things that you've noticed from students that have kind of come to you over the years? Of course, you know, keeping anonymity. Um, I think this pandemic has really highlighted some of the things that existed even before um, we had to quarantine in terms of there were already people who were feeling very isolated um, and felt like they had no meaning in their life or they were very lonely or that the traditional ways of doing school or doing work were not working for them. And then suddenly the whole world is going through this at the same time. And now all of a sudden we all are experiencing bits of what many people have experienced for years before COVID um, shut us down. And so um, but the, the high numbers of people who are um, students who are not coming to school anymore, who have felt like they've lost hope, that we're on track to graduate, on track to keep on progressing, um, it really has turned people's lives upside down. And, and just from the bare fact that the, the, the pandemic took away um, relationships, um, as you all were saying, the, the importance of connection, it, it 
shut that down. It stopped any sense of predictability in our lives It um, and any sense of routine and any sense of knowing, well, what's going to happen next? Because, you know, the news changed. We When we closed down in March of last year, I know I was somebody who thought, oh, I can, you know, I can do this for six to eight weeks. And then it turned into six to eight months. And then, you know, here we are, we're still slowly getting back, but there's still so much uncertainty. And then on top of that, we had a lot of devastating things happen politically, socially, um, racially. Um, so we've all been through a collective trauma. And I don't think anybody would ever be able to design an experiment like this, where you took away relationships and you took away predictability and routine and any sense of hope in people's lives. But here we are, you know, living it now and we're we're seeing the um the outcome of that, what happens when you do do that. Yeah, absolutely. I really like that you went into kind of the fact that a lot of people feel that they take on the burden of the world in the sense that they take a lot of take on a lot of news and and um, have negative you know, news and information about the world. And sometimes they, they internalize it and it does contribute to stress. So you mentioned, I think that's something that I'm hoping to cover a little later on regarding kind of the factors of the current mental health and how you know all this news uh, has affected people in a variety of different ways. So um, I want to, I was thinking before I kind of move on to the next topic, which is the stigma regarding mental health. Does anyone have any kind of concluding views on how mental health has changed or is it safe to move on? All right, great. If anyone has anything, uh, just feel free to write it down and we'll bring it back up uh, kind of at the end. So now looking towards kind of the stigma regarding mental health, uh, I think that a good kind of uh, preface is that there are three key types of stigma according to psychiatry.org and a couple other things that you kind of notice uh, if you just think about it for a while. So there's self-stigma, just something that you must abolish yourself. Uh, self-stigma kind of regards, you think of yourself when you have a mental illness as inferior in some way or another, when in reality is something that you you're kind of born with or that you develop and that it's not necessarily a product of you as a person doing something wrong. You know, um, I guess one way to look at it, so you have one body, one mind, and you're kind of stuck with it until technology reaches a stage or reset process, of course. But, uh, you know, that is something that you have to kind of work on yourself, or if not, you just have to come to accept and, um, you know, being positive about it, uh, cautiously optimistic is something that I think everyone should do. Uh, and then we come to public stigma, which is general opinions and sentiment towards mental illness, which has been transitioning towards more accepting in, the, you know, the recent years, but there's still a lot of work and education to do. And I was hoping the song could speak on this in a little bit. And lastly, we have institutional stigma, which is kind of public or private organizational policies that intentionally or unintentionally limit opportunities um, for people with mental illnesses. For example, denying someone a job on the basis of their ADHD. Uh, even when they have it under control and we actually be more well-functioning than a lot of normal employees. So, um, Mrs. Song, could you kind of speak on any of the changes in the public and institutional stigma and discrimination towards mental illnesses in recent years? Oh, gosh. The, um, in terms of institutional stigma, um, we have a long way to go um, in terms of providing access to good mental health resources, um, it often does come down to um, socioeconomic levels and um, in communities where there is poor 
medical care, there's also poor mental health care and, and the lack of access to quality mental health care. Um, also, the cultural and um, self um, stigma permeates, right? So the people who are making the policies and who could in effect make some changes in um, public and institutional um, mental health care and resources are the ones who are dealing with the stigma too. So we've really got, it's a, it's a pervasive type of um, um, issue. I think we've, and then there's the cultural um, piece of it too, where some, in some cultures, it's just mental health isn't um, realized. It isn't something that even sometimes there's a language for. And, um, and then there's also a lot of shame around asking for help or going outside one's own family to seek help. So we've really got to address it on a on many, many levels um, in order to get then to the broader level of public and institutional um, stigma. But a lot of it does come to policy and lack of resources, but stemming, but for change to really happen, individuals are gonna need to um, come to terms with, I mean, I, I think, you know, we have our, we all have our own biases. And so the more we can do things like this, getting the word out, having discussions about it, um, normalizing, um, asking for help, normalizing mental health as just as you would seek medical help if you broke your arm or you had diabetes or a heart murmur um, or allergies, um, I think we need to normalize mental health and, and asking for help. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of on the topic of asking for help, I guess one thing to to note kind of um, psychologically is that having conversations about what's going on and what you think what you're thinking is much more important than just sitting around and thinking about it. Because when you think you make kind of leaps and you're kind to yourself, you're really harsh on yourself versus when you when you talk to someone, for example, a therapist, um, Ms. Selen, for example, she's a great resource, or anyone else um, that is qualified in some sense to speak to you, whether it's kind of a personal or professional relation, you're forced to kind of articulate your thoughts, write them down or concise them and to and talk to them and you have to make your thoughts into a logical chain. And as such, you sometimes do recognize um, if you're being too kind or too harsh on yourself as well as, you know, better recognize the situation at hand. So that is a great, you know, a great tool for, um, not just tool, but it is very important, sorry, to, to reach out and to get help when needed. Yeah, and I, I, I think I'd like to add to that um, relation. We were created for relationships and to find meaning in life. I, I think that's, that's kind of where I come from. And um, I think of therapy or counseling as really just building a relationship with someone else and, um, and talking things through and kind of like a, a lot of what you were saying is you have to kind of formulate your thoughts but we really can do that every day for each other. I, um, I think that if we could build stronger interpersonal relationships with each other, um, that can do a lot for ourselves and one another, actually far more than really therapy can do. I mean, de definitely there's a time and a place where therapy is needed um, in for um, maybe some serious mental health issues, 
But a lot of times I think we forget how healing just our relationships with each other are. Um, so I'm a big advocate of boosting that because really small connections every day, smiling at somebody, writing them a note, a positive word of encouragement, holding the door open for somebody can actually bring a lot more healing, those little moments every day of connection than one hour of therapy, one day a week. Um, so I'm a big advocate for building relationships, building connections. And, and I know we're going to talk about that a little bit more um, in the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess on that topic, do you have any tips for people to identify relations where they can ex uh, open up and be honest versus relations they should keep kind of more superficial? Is it something that you think people will kind of know? Because I know that um, especially with kind of the advent of texting and stuff, there people get polarized in the sense that either they overshare uh, without realizing that um, they're oversharing um, which honestly sometimes is, isn't really a bad thing, or they they feel isolated and they don't share. Um, and I think that it's very important to find a healthy balance between the two. As uh, so do you kind of have any tips for people to identify good relations? That's a great question. Um, I hope I can answer it adequately. Um, let's see. You know, building relationships is a skill and actually our um, admin team and our guidance staff um, and school-based therapists, we're actually trying to work on developing um, more resources for students to build those social skills. We all know what it looks like when you have somebody who is a good listener and knows how to carry on a conversation or build a relationship um, that is able to be on the receiving and giving end. Um, but, you know, that's really a learned skill that is formed when, as we are growing up and our temperament and personalities play into it, but also how we were raised in our family and even as much as our birth order. Um, so those all kind of go into it. How was how were conversations modeled when we were growing up? Were did our parents listen to us? Were did our were our voices heard um, and acknowledged? And was there guidance in um, in just how to read people's facial expressions and such and so on and so on? And so then here we are as we get older, and especially we're building deeper, closer, more meaningful relationships um, as we go from elementary school to middle school to high school, um, and they are more complicated. And so just as you pointed out that sometimes some of us err on the side of maybe not feeling comfortable with sharing um, and then others who perhaps overshare, um, and hopefully we will give each other grace and teach each other along the way, because what's hard as kids get older and older is the ones who lack those skills end up getting negative feedback, right? They're excluded, they're teased, they're left out. Um, and so I, I think there's again, where that's the, the power of connection where we've got to see, and it takes a lot of maturity to do this, to see outside of ourselves and see somebody who may be hurting and who maybe aren't like super popular or cool or fun to be with all the time, but 
would we take the time to carry on a conversation, listen to somebody, or maybe say, hold on a second, I'm not done talking. Can you let me finish what I'm saying? And then I want to hear what you have to say. Just simple guidance like that every day. We, I think we can help each other out um, along the way because we're all at different skill levels in terms of our social skills. Um, but in terms of who can you trust, I think, um, you know, it's wise to, to test out the waters. I think, um, you know, you start sharing a little bit first of information that's safe. And we all kind of have our concentric circles of people who are in our close group that we maybe have known a long time, we feel safe with. Um, and then the next concentric circle out is maybe... And maybe that smaller one is with family, but maybe some of our family, we don't feel as safe and comfortable talking about. So they're in that next concentric circle. Um, and then, you know, there's our acquaintances and then there's people that we just pass by. And then there's people who we know aren't, are definitely not in our safe group. But um, I think it's always best to share little bits and test that out and see how it goes over time. Um, and you, I'm sure have found people who you know through those little bits who um, follow through and are safe people to talk to, but we all make mistakes too. So that's where grace and forgiveness needs to come in. But I, I think in um, high school, and as I talk with students, it's hard because people you grew up with and were close to in um, fifth, sixth grade and and in uh, middle school too, sometimes things change because the nature of relationships change. And so we're all also at different levels in terms of how tightly or how um, loosely we hold on to our relationships. And I just came across a great um, website. It's called One Love and um, they promote healthy relationships and they also address um, dating violence and um, they talk about consent, but they have these great YouTube 20 to 30 second little clips of these cartoon characters. Um, and if you look, if you search under YouTube, one love couplets, um, it's got these great kind of like um, little social scenarios between these um, um, cartoon characters, what like obsession and jealousy and, um, oh, I can't remember the others, privacy, but things that we all kind of come up with in our close relationships. And it's great. And it'll, it'll say, it'll give an example of what, um, healthy relationships are. And then this a little cute example of what they're not, but it's a great kind of either a conversation starter to take a look at those, or even just reflection about your own relationships to see what kind of pops up in these 20 to 30 second little clips um, and challenges about relationships. I think sometimes we are so lonely or so scared or so, I mean, we have that need for connection. And if we're not getting it, if it's not happening at home, if it's not happening in our friendships, um, in our, in our daily connections, either through sports or in class or activities, um, then we're more vulnerable to unhealthy relationships sometimes. Um, or we just, we don't have the experience of knowing what a healthy relationship is and not because we're all along the path of learning. And so it is a lot, unfortunately, um, a lot of trial and error in learning who are those safe relationships. And sometimes we get hurt or we come to have this relationship that was safe and wonderful. 
And then at some point um, it ends because somebody else, their feelings have changed or they move or, um, you know, like for seniors who are going off to college, it's going to be a big shift in their relationships. And so that's all a part of life that we're navigating together. Um, but it, I, I, I can't give an exact formula or recipe for it. A lot of it is trial and error. But what I would say is to start slow, um, but really lean on the adults that you can trust too. And, and um, you know, they think a lot of times adults or parents will think that high school time is a time where students care about their peers more than their parents or more than their family or adults in their lives. But um, I think it's always good if even if you don't feel super close to your parents um, to try to make bridges there. Um, it's never too late to do that. Um, but if it's if you don't have safe relationships in your family, then look for other adults. And that's something we can talk about when we get to the resources we have on campus is that we do have a lot of adults here who are safe and are trustworthy um, that you all know and, and see and interact with every day that you can go to and lean on. But I would say keep adults in your life as a good resource so that when you aren't sure about some relationship that you are having, um, you have somebody, a trusted adult you can go to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm building on kind of the, the Join One Love channel. I just looked them up and uh, it's just eight videos, 16 seconds each, so just over two minutes. And for the audience, I know that it does like, to be honest, I know a lot of kids are gonna think it's corny, but it's two minutes. It really doesn't take much big time just check it out um let's join one love uh great okay so yeah i think this kind of covered a lot of the stigma and a lot of things that people can do to help so i think this is fantastic uh, anything else that we have on this topic can definitely be tabled because i'm hoping to move on to kind of a larger segment on the factors of current mental health and i think a huge one prevalent one is phones um the kind of uh, in particular social media and I think that one thing that social media does do for us is that it allows us to have a different paradigm of identity in the sense that the person you put online is not the person you are in real life at all. It allows you to mask your insecurities, filter your content, etc. And of course, another thing to keep in mind is that social media is literally built to abuse your neural circuits for rewards based on the explore page content, likes, comments, followers, etc. Like nothing that is monetized or that is, is such on a large scale is ever ha, ever has the the user's best interests at heart, right? So it's built to make as much money and attract as large an audience as possible. So I guess a good thing to keep in mind is that just to be reminded of of the true aims of social media, as well as to just recognize that everything is fake. I think uh, recently social media has gravitated toward recognition of the fact that it is a completely fake. Um, representation of oneself and there are a lot of people making an active effort to be more realistic uh, and i really do appreciate that and i hope everyone if even if they don't do that um, at least recognizes that fact and doesn't allow social media to get them down but of course this is just uh, breaching the surface of kind of social media and its effect on kids uh, as well as you know adults everyone really that uses it so i was hoping that ben and amrutha could kind of go more into this um, yeah. So another point to also add to that is that the companies, social media companies doing this stuff, they aren't just like figuring out ways like on the fly to uh, 
how to keep it on their app. They're actually using artificial intelligence, machine learning programs. And what it turns out is that when these programs try to learn how to manipulate you pretty much, stay on the app more, it's not anything conscious. It's all unconscious conditioning and changing your attention. Um, so I actually have like a pretty big just spiel I can go into about this. Um, but before I do that, and Ruth, is there anything you want to say? I was just going to add, I think, you know how you said, like, it's all artificial intelligence. Um, a big thing for anyone who uses, like, TikTok, they know it. Like, everyone is always, like, trying to trying to crack the TikTok al- algorithm. They're like, oh, if I post at 8 p.m., then it's going to get the most views. And as soon as I post, I have to get off the app. Or after I post, I need to go live, and then people will come to my page. And then after that, I need to be posting, like, two posts per day. And then, like, they, like, put all this pressure on themselves just to become, like, just to have that, that either it's going to be like external validation that they're seeking because it's so normalized to seek that through social media, or um, they want to become an influencer and have sort of the influence that they see, you know, a lot of creators having on the platform um, to be able to like show off their lives, which is, it's a really cool idea. But like, like you said, it, it sucks that that's what it's, what it boils down to. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with you. Um, so to give more context to what I'm about to say about how social media affects your attention, I'm just gonna go into like a general thing about the mind and mental plasticity, which will just be in general good to talk about for uh, any, con- any conversation about mental health. Um, so here we go. Um, everything in our brain is not set in stone. We have a trait called neuroplasticity, which, talk- which is pretty much about our brain's constant ability to change. And scientists actually haven't been able to find a limit of our ability to change in our brain. It is that high. And our brains change in literally every single moment. Any, anytime that our neuron fires, a, ner- a single neuron fires in our brain, our brain is changing, right? So a better way to look at any mental disposition that you have, any trait that you have, is not as an inherent, inescapable trait that defines who you are, right? But rather as a skill that you either have trained well and developed, one that you haven't developed, have avoided having to confront. So this doesn't mean that there aren't different starting points and different limits of how far your potential can take you, just like how LeBron James was born physically crazy and just simply not everyone can be like that based on their biological starting point, right? But it does not mean that you aren't able to move in the direction of being more mentally capable in pretty much any area ever, right? So socializing is a skill, even mental well-being is a skill, and especially having control over your attention is a skill that social media is draining. So... Being mindful and aware of what you are doing is when you are in the most control and when you direct your attention. But what social media does is it locks you into an endless, mindless cycle where you can lie down and do absolutely nothing and be forever stimulated with engaging content as you scroll and scroll and scroll, which is something that our evolutionary history has never intended to be possible. So what this does is it trains your attention in your brain, changes the literal physiology of the neurons in your brain to be more mindless and less under your conscious control. And this will leave you on the social media app for way longer than you intended in the first place. And you move in the direction, just like we talked about earlier with the mental skills, you move in the direction of having a more dispersed attention span, which makes you have, in a way, more symptoms of ADHD. Yeah, obviously, that's that's like quite fascinating to hear about. Um, I, like every time I read more about this, I'm more and more fascinated just by how every time I read and hear, sorry, it's how just the nature of how this is how this was designed. Um, yeah, Amrita, do you have anything to build on this or Roshan? Yeah, sort of covered the, the basis, you know, social media plays a very, very important role, you know, and 
when we really look into it, especially after lockdown, it played an even more vital role. Like, like anyone who's listening right now, they have social media. Our school sometimes like uses social media as a way to talk to students and things like that. And we're on like Zoom meetings 24 seven, you know, we're all, all of our information comes from social media, even, and I'm sure Pranav is gonna dive into this later, like the news, like a lot of where we see the news, whether it's factual or not, we get from social media. And social media has become like a platform, you know, like a plat, and, and it's also caused like a rise in cancel culture that I've noticed. And with that platform, um, comes a lot of negative, I wouldn't say news, but there are so many things thrown your way when you open open your phone or when you open Instagram. You see, um, like personally, uh, I'll just, you know, get into it. I'm gonna get into like something that's like a little sensitive before I, you know, like like as you've seen, like the in the last year, you've seen the Black Lives Matter movement. You've seen, um, you know, posts about people telling their sexual assault stories, as you know, people talking about stop Asian hate, you know, and currently right now, I see a lot of people talking about how uh, COVID-19 has become a tsunami in India and, and social media, people share it on their stories, and it's become this platform for activism. But as much as I am proud that social media is creating awareness to things and is putting, like, it is bringing forth activism, like activism out there, you know, like people are becoming more aware of, of issues that they weren't aware before. When you hop on your phone and you're on your phone for hours, that can be very emotionally tolling. And it's a lot to think about. And it's really heavy. Like I, at least personally speaking, in June of last year, everyone was sharing that video of George Floyd. And it's almost like sharing a video of someone being killed was so normalized that it, it took away from the humanness of it all. And so social media normalizes a lot of things. It can be very triggering to some that is not discussed as much or is not discussed often. And, and it's also like, I wouldn't say a distraction, but so much of, of, of our lives is social media now. Like personally speaking, again, like all I do is sit in my room all day. Sometimes I don't even go for walks, you know? So it's just like everything I do is on my phone. So it's just, it's just something to think about or put out there. And I think kind of to what Ben was saying about how um, neuroplasticity that, you know, our brains, when we started this podcast, um, are different than what our brains or our brains now are different than what our brains were like at, at the start of this podcast with all this information and this interaction and um, learning and the um, within to what Amrita was saying that on social media, you, you can just get all these messages that trigger this fight or flight response or low level stress, chronic stress of our world is not safe. Our world is not predictable. There are terrible things going on out there. And yes, while it can move us to activism and compassion, um, there is something else that goes on in our brain that is that sense of raising our anxiety and, um, and then when our anxiety levels are up and that fight or flight part of our brain is activated, then the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for thinking and learning and logic um, is pretty much shut down or slowed down. So then that's why 
I, I think I have a lot of students saying, you know, I can't even focus. Um, I can spend like, I start to do homework, but I get easily distracted and I can't really sustain any type of attention for much more than five or 10 minutes. And then I'm not getting anything done. And then I'm staying up all night trying to get things done. And then I'm losing sleep. And then there, there starts a negative cycle. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, 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 oh, no, go, go for it. Go Sorry, for it. You go. All right. Thank you. Um, yeah, I totally agree. It's like, it's such a prominent effect in our life. That's hard to go 30 minutes doing homework without having to check your phones at some point. And once you check your phones for one second, you end up mindlessly being on there for way longer than you intended. An example that I noticed in myself is that I will open my phone to respond to one chat, Snapchat, and I will automatically end up on Instagram or TikTok scrolling there without even being mindful of how I got there or without even meaning to it all. So because I signed up doing my Instagram and TikTok to the back of my phone folder, try to give myself a more of a chance to become mindful when I'm scrolling through to get to it, that worked for a couple of days. But now even that has become a mindless thing where I will open Snapchat and somehow just end up on Instagram or TikTok. So this is very prominent and it's really serious effects on our attention and what we do mindfully and mindlessly. Yeah, and um, one thing the most before lockdown even happened, um, now something that's coming up more to the light is how social media sort of has a direct impact on mental illness or uh, disorders, one of them being um, eating disorders. Uh, one thing that I've either had friends experience or have have read a lot about is how, um, you know, people see, see, see people on social media who look perfect with all these perfect bodies, photoshopped, facetuned, 10,000 filters look like that. And that slowly leads to, you know, starving themselves or body dysmorphia, which is, is it's, it's very terrifying to think that what is on your phone or what is on this like LED machine that's like staring right at you can influence so much of how you perceive yourself. And like recently what happened um, is it, it, just, it just goes to show how much of social media is trying to be perfect, showing this perfect life. And it sort of makes everyone feel like insecure if they don't have what they see in these posts, you know, like a week ago or about two weeks ago, um, you guys might know there's the Kardashians, you know, you, they're like, they're like known for Photoshop, but Khloe Kardashian, I think her grandma took a picture of her and there was no Photoshop. It was just her uh, in a beach looking like a completely normal person, like we all do. And when Chloe saw that this was going like viral, because essentially in the, in the you know, the video, the, the picture wasn't filtered, right? It, it looked like her. And for her that she like panicked, she got her whole legal team on the case and they started pulling down, they copyrighted the picture and started pulling down every single image that was shared to the internet of, of her in that bathing suit at the beach. And she, it's like, um, it's like instances, I guess, I guess the reason why I shared that example is because it's like people who are influencers um, might not be the best influence, especially during lockdown. Yeah, 100%. I agree with everything you said. I didn't, I didn't actually know about that prior to this. So that's quite interesting and concerning, to be honest, to hear about. But yeah. Um, so yeah, on the topic kind of of social media, um, I would like to transition to two topics. Number one, overload of stimuli, which I think social media is definitely one. Uh, but that, you know, it that kind of encompasses both social media and news. 
So kind of under this broader umbrella, there definitely are a couple other categories. So I'd like to start with news and then transition to any topic that kind of falls under the overload stimuli, because with so much information at our fingertips, um, you're, you know, human, humans in general do tend to get overwhelmed. So there are a lot of things that kind of fall into this bucket, but just on the topic of news, I know that Ben had a couple of things to mention earlier. So uh, I'd love it if you could get started and then I'll build on anything he has to say. So news, just like social media and everything under capitalism pretty much operates for their own objectives to make a profit and not necessarily for the well-being of society. So recently this has started to become more masked because in order to profit, it's become a beneficial thing to have for a company to have some social awareness to make posts about important social injustices so that people view your company in a good light. But that doesn't mean at the end of the day, any capitalist business doesn't just run for the sole purpose of making a profit. News, in addition to that profit, wants to sway public opinion. They want to sway you to your side. They want to feed your previous biases and manifest them to be even stronger so they have a tighter grip on you and public consensus. They have zero objectivity and are always there to promote a motive, no matter what. As a side note, this is why I like listening to individual political commentaries on YouTube instead of any news stuff, but that's just my, my own stuff, my own opinions. Um, and so, yeah, they will do anything to strengthen the public's opinion public's belief in their side, even if it polarizes people, polarizes politics and creates huge, huge divisions in the country. They will paint things out to be a crisis that needs immediate confrontation to give their viewers a sense of urgency to join in on the fight, which gives people serious anxiety and fear for the future. And by the way, this happens to be a common trait in fascist countries, which if you look at the 14 characteristics of fascism by Umberto Eco, you'll see that. Once again, putting my own political stuff into there a little bit, but yeah. Or what they will do is they will paint Serious things that to be not such a real problem to promote their motives when in reality we should be very worried about it because it's a real pressing problem, just like climate change. So at the end of the day, they don't care about your mental health or the polarization they're causing in the world. They only care about strengthening their side and making a profit. And you have to be very wary of that. Yeah, 100%. Um, frankly, I, I couldn't have said any of that better. Uh, so I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I don't have much to build on top of that. Um, like I'm someone who cares nothing about politics. I know next to nothing about political parties, ideologies, government, really anything like that, even though I'm in those classes right now. I just, it's just something that escapes my mind. I don't understand it. I find it to be just outside of my interest. And even I get affected by news when I read it. So uh, I kind of do agree with Ben. I like to listen to individual political commentaries and kind of videos regarding their own ideologies on YouTube. Uh, I think that's quite interesting. It's something I recommend everyone do, uh, just so they have variety of um, opinion to listen to other than just news or maybe news sponsored podcasts. If anyone else has any other topics kind of under the general umbrella of overload of stimuli, then I, as you mentioned, uh, social media and news, you know, there's a lot of other things that kind of fall in this, uh, for example, video games, texting, that could be a lot when you're trying to maintain relations with maybe a lot of people at once, it does get overwhelming. There's definitely times when I've just ghosted people for like days, just because I don't want to talk to that many people at once. Um, I know that's probably- I relate, I relate very hard to that. It, it can be so overwhelming. So, oh yeah. Yeah, so definitely there's a lot of different examples of kind of overload stimuli. So if anyone has anything that kind of speaks to them um, in particular, please just hop right in, including you, Mr. Sala. Uh, I just wanted to jump in about stimuli in general. 
uh, I think a lot of people like fail to understand that the like base of all of this is just your attention level. And you don't have an unlimited amount. Attention is a limited resource in your mind. Some people may have a little more, some people may have a little, a little less, but at the end of the day, it is limited. And the longer you use it, the less efficient it gets. So the longer you spend on a task, the less focus you'll be able to give to that task over time. And when you overload stimuli like this, like if, for example, I think it's like something that happens to me a lot is I'm like going over lecture material for a class. My phone is right next to it and I'll see a single notification just in the peripheral of my vision. And instantly, like my mind instantly just goes straight to it. It's, it's really hard. And I have to make a like, constant mental effort to make sure to not turn towards my phone. And I'm already draining half of my attention just to not attend to my, it's just a big difficulty to focus on what's at hand when you have uh, so much stimuli in the background. And a lot of people think uh, like multitasking is a, is, a, is a great trait and it'll help, like it, it's helpful and you're smarter if you can multitask because you can do multiple things at once, but it's really not a good thing because when you spread your attention across different uh, different tasks. Like I said, it's a limited resource and uh, you're just spreading it thin. So you're just doing each task at a le less efficient level than you would have if you just focus on one task. So multitasking is in no way a good trait. Uh, if it's a mundane activity, then of course, multitasking can help when you do activities like that. But for uh, activities that require higher processing, uh, like reading, for example, uh, it's really not good to multitask and have multiple activities going on at once. Uh, it just you just don't get the level same level of uh, information gathering that you would have if you just focused on that single task. And this kind of ties into like news and uh, social media because it's just it's always there and it's hard to uh, so hard it's hard to like shield yourself away from it and focus on other things that might be more important to you. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, definitely quite interested for that section. Um, I do have kind of just a general question is, I noticed we've talked about a lot about how social media is bad, how news is bad, how, sorry, when I say bad, I mean, with reference to something that's, you know, quite pure in the sense that it has your best interests at heart. Um, I should have defined that earlier, but you know, a lot of this is, is negative for your attention and for your overall mental being, especially if used not in moderation. So I think that's the key thing, right? To use it in moderation, to use it properly. For example, one of my idols, Alex Friedman, he uses social media whenever he posts um, and he does it very strictly, at least as of kind of a video I watched of him. He does it quite strictly in the sense that he posts and then he allows himself to look at the positive comments only. If there's a negative comment, he just, he just glosses over it, which is again, something that um, I've definitely employed in my own life. Like if there's something that's causing me insecurity, or that's making me worried, I will just ignore it. Just pretend it doesn't exist and move on. And oftentimes the problem literally just disappears. So I think that's something that he uses as well. I think it's a great tactic. And he basically allows himself to look at, to look at social media for 10 minutes and then he closes it and then he moves on. And then he checks another time. But he said, if he checks more than once or twice, he starts to gravitate towards the negative feedback because after a while you run out of positive feedback, right? Uh, and I think that's something interesting to keep in mind. I, I know that as much as I personally dislike social media, I definitely do use it much more than I, than I would care to admit. And I do, I do find that if I'm just, if I just check once or twice a day, I just briefly go through some posts and stories and then close it. Versus if I start checking more than once or twice a day, 
for more than you know two, uh, five minutes at a time, five to ten minutes at a time, I just start going on the explore page and things like that. And that is, as Ben mentioned, literally where you just start your time just starts to slip, and next thing you know, you're you know scrolling through a Snapchat story that you don't care about, and it's thirty minutes later, and you're like, oh, where did my time go? So I think that is something that to keep in mind, just to make a more conscious effort to check once or twice a day or find a number that works for you, only check for a little bit of time. And if anyone else has kind of any actionable advice, uh, not in the field of social media, but you know, with respect to news or as Roshan mentioned, overload of stimuli, uh, that'd be great to kind of you know, delve into right now. I kind of wanted to like um, ask a question maybe. So, you know, like a lot, a lot of checking your phone comes from notifications. What do you guys think about people turning off their notifications completely just so that they're, they're, they're able to focus better? Yeah, I mean, I, I do that. I don't have notifications on my phone and I have do not disturb. So I don't even receive calls. Um, I just check the voicemail if they leave a voicemail. And what the problem that occurs with that is that then when you pick up your phone, you, you often have a fear of missing out. You're like, okay, well, I haven't, I have to now check all these apps. For example, I've removed Instagram. So I just use the web browser version now because it's a little harder to, because of all the inconveniences with the video rendering and stuff to kind of scroll on it for a long time. But um, now whenever I check, I check more things versus if I have notifications, sometimes when you get a lot of notifications, you're able to see kind of the ridiculousness of how much is going on and how much is begging for your attention. For example, if I'm away from my phone for an hour and I come back and I just, you know, just turn on the screen and I have no notifications, I might think, oh, what if something important is happening? Versus if there are notifications, you just briefly check the notifications. You're like, oh, it's just a bunch of people posted. There's some cool, like some people were live like an hour ago. Uh, I got a bunch of random snaps for streaks or whatever. And like, okay, I don't really care. I'm going to move on. And I think that's something that there is definitely a drawback um, to not having notifications is that you do have a constant fear of missing out. At least I think that's something that I have in my experience. So it's kind of a game you can never win. So I think just being mindful of both sides and trying to find a healthy medium that works for you is, yeah, I guess the ultimate uh, best decision. Yeah, definitely. I like that you phrased it as a game you can't win. That was like perfect. That was like, yeah. No, I, I was also thinking like um, for people who post a lot, like at least on Instagram or on whatever platform, I noticed that there is a lot of pressure. I, I personally, I don't feel too much pressure, but I know that a lot of my friends have a lot of pressure when it comes to posting on Instagram. I want to know, like, what, uh, I feel like I'm asking a lot of questions, but what are your guys' thoughts on, or, or maybe Miss Saline, you can weigh on this, of, like, having so much pressure to, like, post on social media, or, like, this picture needs to be perfect, and uh, which picture should go second, and which picture should go third, and, oh, make sure to, I, I need to make sure to put this, like, new post, you know, and or what, where do you guys think that that pressure stems from, and... Or, or what are your personal experiences with it? Because mine have been, I feel like the my my friends were more putting the pressure on like, ah, oh, which is your which is gonna be your third picture, or which is gonna be your second picture. While I'm just like, I'll just put like this picture, and then I like look, you regret it later, and then it like it's like it's like a it's like a game almost, like you said. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I don't post often. I literally never take pictures, but when I used to post, I would just post the most random things just for fun and. 
I think uh, now I have no worth assigned to my Instagram. I don't care about it. I don't care the perception of it. Like it just doesn't matter. I used to post the most random things. I just post random memes. I just post random things that I found cool, like aesthetic pictures, literally just, I think if you like, it's a form of self-destruction. Yes. Now it doesn't really mean anything what I post, but I'm okay with that. And I think um, it's a weird tactic, but it's one that worked in some sense or another. Yeah. It's like when you, when you post online like that, it's like your public identity. It's like that can be a way for people to see who you are and how you define yourself. So it's like you have this pressure to create this identity of yourself and this perception of yourself. Um, and so for you to just not really care, to be honest, it's great for you. I have a lot of respect for that. I'm a lot lazier for it with myself. Like I only have like four pictures posted on Instagram. Um, I feel like, to be honest, like just only having those four compared to people who have like an entire page and page like makes me seem, I don't know, different. Like, like, like I'm less willing to let that public thing out and I feel like you know it's like sort of an insecurity of mine that like you know I don't have that public image for myself and that's like a part of the whole game of social media right it's to get you in that trap where it's like you have to continue posting and posting and posting and creating this image about yourself when really that image will never ever, ever represent who you actually are and it's always a better picture than it is in reality or in some way skewed it's never perfect I agree with uh, Pranav. I'm, I'm pretty much just like him. I used to use Instagram a lot, uh, just posting random stuff. I reposting like things other people posted because it seemed cool. Uh, but I think the thing is, it all boils down to when you uh, when you start realizing that um, like it's just self realization that it does. Like at some point, you uh, you'll come to understand that like what what you're doing doesn't really matter. Like a lot of people that are listening to this right now, there's like we're saying social media is bad. A lot of them will just they they won't really care. They'll just continue doing like they'll continue posting and all of that. Like people that do continue to post will continue to post. This might just go through uh, straight through their ears, but uh, it's it, it all, like eventually some somewhere down the line you'll come to like it's just a self realization. It happens eventually, and when you when it does happen, you'll start to realize like does it really matter? Uh, caring about uh, what people that you'll probably never ever see in real life uh, think about your feed or if you have uh, a lot of friends that are pressuring you to post like this is it really worth being bring friends with people that uh, care so much about just what the surface level of you they just care about the surface level that just that selfie on Instagram how it, how it does like how many likes it gets is it really worth uh, like being around people that just care about that level of you and it just boils down to that self-realization eventually it happens and when it does you'll like that's when you'll realize it yeah I definitely I definitely see where you're coming from I think social media means different things to different people and and I feel like that's what uh I sort of got like if if you're if you're if like because personally just um speaking a lot of my interests lie in like creativity photography Social media is a way where I can make my pictures sort of reflect who I am using like art creativity or sometimes I'll throw a bit of my culture in and sort of post. And um, for me, my friends, I feel like it could come off as, you know, like, oh, like they only care about how well your post does. But for me, my friends are more encouraging in that way in like, hey, post because they know I have good pictures that are waiting and they're like, you know what, you got to show people like, this is a bomb picture. Like you did really well here. Like the creativity, like it's, it's more than how my face looks in that picture um, to me or them. 
And so I think it, it definitely matters how, what it means to different people. It could just be like posting a picture with friends or something that truly reflects who you are. So we've had a quite lengthy discussion on social media, but not bad at all. I think a lot of it is very insightful. And as Roshan mentioned something, as Roshan and Ruta mentioned kind of equally, it's either you view social media as a platform to elevate a certain image that you have of yourself to elevate kind of certain traits that you have and as a, as a, as a method to exercise your creativity and kind of show your personality or something that eventually comes to terms that doesn't quite matter and you just use it as a kind of a fun page to post things that you you find neat and things like that. Um, so I think that's, it was honestly a quite interesting um, conversation. I, I learned a lot my personally and I hope the audience did as well. So now I'm kind of hoping to move on to two things. One, kind of how has, uh, as Roshan mentioned, an uh, advent of, sorry, a facet of overload of semiotic substance abuse, um, kind of how has that affected people's mental health, especially in ways I don't know, for example, substances like caffeine, that is a drug. People pretended it isn't, but it is. Um, and I think recognizing that is uh, is something that people should definitely, people to often make it a personality trait that I love coffee, I'm a coffee addict, and they, they treat it like it's fun, but in reality, that is an issue. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I believe Roshan can definitely delve into this more. A lot of what I have is more surface level understanding that um, really I'm sure a lot of the audience has as well. Um, yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, so stepping into substances. Uh, so I just wanted to give a brief overview of like so some a couple of like famous substances or popular ones. You have caffeine, tobacco, uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, and uh, cannabis. And so a lot of these, what they do is once they get into the body, they either act as antagonists or agonists. And so agonists are pretty much uh, by like like substances that enhance an effect that's already happening or a biological mechanism that's already exists in your body. And so like for example, um, nicotine or tobacco is an agonist that uh, enhances what's already happening in your body, which is uh, why like it, uh, you start to feel like more active or your body feels more active, but your mind feels uh, more relaxed. And like, co like cocaine and methamphetamine are also stimulants that uh, like enhance an, an, uh, an already existing effect in that they act on uh, norep uh, norepinephrine uh, receptors and they increase the effect of that. So you, you're, you'll, you'll feel like a increase of heart rate and increase of blood flow and you're, you'll mentally feel more active at that point. Like you'll, you'll be more stimulated mentally. And uh, caffeine is uh, the opposite. It's an antagonist. It does the, uh, it suppresses an already existing um, mechanism. And so what, uh, uh, what, um, caffeine does is it uh, it acts against uh, adenosine, which is another neurotransmitter. It acts uh, at those receptors and decreases uh, the um, the use of aden uh, adenosine by neural pathways. And adenosine is a neurotransmitter that inhibits neural activity. So you'll uh, it so by like decreasing the effect of adenosine, you're essentially increasing neural activity. So that's why when you uh, and take caffeine, you feel more active and you can move around more. But the key thing to take with any of these uh, different substances is that when you use them more, like Ben was talking before about neuroplasticity, you're, you're pretty much changing the wiring of your brain to like every time you use them. So the more you use caffeine, the more, the stronger that effect, that uh, mental effect is like biologically being uh, changed inside your brain. 
And so like to get the same level of effect next time, you're going to have to take more and more caffeine. So that's how addiction start. You like once you take it once and you get that, the, the neuroplasticity strengthens that effect. The next time you want to get the same desired effect or the same sensation, you're going to want to take, you have to take uh, higher and higher quantities, which is why uh, like when you take uh, cocaine or methamphetamine or cannabis, it's very easy to go down the pathway to addiction. And as you take more and more, like the, uh, your body can only handle so much. There's only so there's only like a high enough limit. And once you, uh, as you take more and more, you'll eventually hit that limit and your body won't be able to handle the effect that those substances have. Yeah, a hundred percent. There is stigma regarding them, but the way that they're approached is that they fry your brain and that they make you bad and all, all the stuff. And then the way that that, that actually often makes students or kids more interested because they're like, oh, that, they can't be all this bad. Like, come on, like, you know, my, my uncle Timmy smokes weed and he's all right, <laughs> that type of thing. Um, I've definitely heard stories like that. And, and that's how kids often get into it. And as you mentioned, it does rewire their brain quite literally until you're 25, you shouldn't do substances, including caffeine, if you want optimal development. And I think that's uh, obviously that's not gonna happen. Come on, we don't live in a perfect world. Um, but I think that is definitely something that people have to recognize and they have to come to terms with the fact that your body isn't supposed to handle this. Um, at the same time, the way that it's approached, as I mentioned, is that people get interested versus they don't actually understand what it's doing to themselves. So, peop, uh, so for example, in frats, people think it's, it's cool to go with the flow, drink, drink a couple beers with lunch, drink a couple beers with dinner, things like that. But they don't realize how that's literally changing their body, changing their mind, things like that. And people, it's often popularized. It's, it's cool to be a stoner, but it's really not. It, it screws with you in, in ways that are unparalleled. So I think things, you have to recognize these things. Um, yeah, we could delve a lot into this. But frankly, I think it's a topic that people are quite divisive on. Either you you use substances uh, as a kid and you're okay with it, or you don't and you know why you don't do it and you have your values in kind of in place and you're not worried about it. So I think that is um, something that I just wanted to mention briefly. And uh, we can I'd, I'd prefer to table, table this and uh, come back to it in a little bit. So kind of before we go on, uh, to kind of the non-cliche things you could do to help yourself. Uh, I wanted to go over some resources that people can use. This is kind of in line with the things you can do to help yourself. These Before are- Before we move on, uh, I just wanted to add one last thing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. If anybody's like, it feels like, like they're getting a wake up call about substances and you're trying to like get out of an addiction or something, remember that it's never, never healthy to just immediately cut it out. Always talk with a physician and you have to taper it out, never- like instantly just cut it out. It's never going to be a good idea for to do that. So you always want to take smaller and smaller levels until you're finally out and always, always get like medical expertise before you decide to make a decision to get quit. I think that also, frankly, that depends on the type of person you are. For some people quitting cold turkey, cold turkey works. For some people it doesn't, um, but I don't, I don't want to get into this. So as you mentioned, uh, please seek a professional and uh, seek real medical help. Now onto the topic of resources. Uh, I think definitely at 
each school, there's a lot of resources that people can go through. Uh, for example, Mrs. Salen here is a fantastic resource, and a lot of students have worked with her, and um, they've only had good, you know, good things to say. So I think that's a really good example of a good resource that people can use. Uh, but apart from that, there's also some other resources like online influences. For example, I know Sam Harris is a big one. Um, ben has a lot to say about him. So I think definitely we can go into those. So I'd like to start with uh, open floor to discussion about in-school resources. Um, in addition to seeing me or Mr. Hickey um, for counseling support, um, our guidance counselors and Mrs. Amick in the College and Career Center are great sources of support, especially related to academic stress um, or just kind of like, I don't know what I'm interested in and I don't know what I want to do after high school um, and what's the plan what's the best plan or my parents want me to do this and I feel so much pressure to comply and um, to do or to do what the Cupertino bubble says is um, the definition of success. I've worked really closely with them and they um, have so much wisdom and good advice and they're just great listeners too so that you don't feel like you have they won't always have the perfect answer but you don't have to worry alone and i think that's one of the messages um i i want to get out to students is for them to know that um you know we're, we aren't a perfect school that we can't do we don't handle everything perfectly but we really are committed to making sure students don't feel alone, that they know they have um, safe adults to talk to. There are kind of challenges that we do have with the system um, of education and, um, and, and the types of resources that we can do and support students in when they're under 18, that, that has caused some challenges. And I think, um, it would be a whole nother podcast to talk about that when we hear that students are frustrated on certain areas that they feel like we're not doing enough. Um, but we want to do better and we want to hear what students have to say. Um, we want to be able to let students know what the limits are of our ability to help. Um, but that, again, the, the bottom line is they don't need to go through things alone. So. The guidance counselors, Mrs. Amick, um, your teachers and coaches can also be sources of re good resources for you to go to if you aren't feeling comfortable talking with um, a school-based therapist. Um, you're worried about, um, you know, it just doesn't feel comfortable opening up to somebody you've never met. So that's completely understandable. So start with somebody that you do know and that you feel comfortable with. Um, sometimes even I've had students bring in a friend, the, stu um, the student doesn't, their friend doesn't feel comfortable coming to see me directly, but they trust their friend enough. And so they'll come in together and we'll talk together and do a quick introduction. Um, I think getting involved with activities too. I, I know that clubs and sports aren't necessarily for everybody, um, but if you could try one club, um, activity. We've got such a big range. And again, if you don't know where to start, I think Mr. Cho is a great resource. Um, other of the students in leadership, um, I think too, just watching out for each other. I, I know, I know sometimes I'll walk around campus and, um, you know, you can kind of just sense who 
might be eating alone and you see them eating alone for many, many days. And it's not necessary that you necessarily have to bring them into your group, but you could stop and say hi or have a chat. Um, I hope that these kinds of ideas don't sound corny, but I, I think that we could do a lot more to look out for each other um, and kind of recognize our a lot of the common issues we all struggle with, whether it might be feeling invisible or feeling alone or feeling like we're the only one struggling with certain things. Um, branching outside of our, our friend groups from time to time and, um, and connecting with a different friend group or overlapping more. Um, but if you, and, and then I, Mr. Hickey and I and the guidance counselors can definitely connect you with local resources too. If there are resources here that we don't provide, um, we can connect you with local resources as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much for that. I think a lot of this translates to other schools as well. It just comes down to finding those resources at your school. So I'm sure that, you know, the website uh, of your you know, respective school will have a lot. I think a lot of this applies as well in the sense that there is, you know, uh, student, teach, uh, student staff confidentiality um, to a large degree with, with almost every kind of interaction you have. No one's out to get you. People really do care. Uh, or at the very least, if they do not care, they will most likely have the basic decency to not hurt you. So you can never lose anything um, to from from reaching out to adults. Um, so I think that is definitely something that everyone should consider, uh, or at least kind of tell other people if if they do need help. Now on this topic, I was hoping to transition kind of into some more online resources because that is something that definitely most students look to. Um, for example, when I I was trying to work on becoming more mindful and just more in tune with myself, I think there are definitely some resources online that really help me. And I'll go into them in a bit, but I wanted to start with something that is really cliche, but frankly, it's it's I think if done properly, it's one of the most amazing things you can do for yourself, which is kind of breathing and, and meditation. So I think a big person in this sphere is Sam Harris. I think Ben had a couple things to say about Sam. So you know, just uh, opening up the floor. So listening to Sam Harris, like to be pretty frank, has like really changed the route in my life. Like he's a very, I really, really love the way he thinks. Um, I'll try to go into some of the details here. So he studied philosophy and neurobiology in college. And he has personally went on multiple year long retreats at Zogchen Buddhist centers in Tibet, where he learned many, many insights about meditation, but did so from a skeptical angle. And the reason it's from a skeptical angle is because he's actually probably one of the leading voices of atheism in the world right now. And I really like his arguments right there, enough that I actually wrote an essay on one of his debates against Jordan Pearson about it. Um, but even with the skepticism that he brings to everything in life, he understands and can very well articulate the rational benefits of meditation. Um, so I'll go into some of like the more general um, tools of meditation that like, you know, the, the average meditation app will help you do. <clears throat> so first off, it helps you relax and just unwind in general, which on its own, sitting down, closing your eyes and breathing calmly just tends to do, period. Um, and also it trains your attention span to be more focused and less dispersed so you can be here now in the present instead of be being lost in the past with thoughts or being lost in anxiety about the future thoughts. Um, 
And so it trains your ability to simply observe your emotions, let them pass away without being implicated by them. So you can less often act on the basis of them when you shouldn't, when you're angry, when you're feeling sad, et cetera. Um, and one of the biggest insights that you get from this is that you realize that on a fundamental level of consciousness, right? You are not your thoughts. You are the awareness behind your thoughts that can bear witness to your thoughts. It doesn't have to be implicated by the constant ongoing narrative that they endlessly speak out at you. And this narrative itself may be true, may not be true. It a lot of times does not represent reality perfectly. Um, I'll probably go more into that later. Um, and in my opinion, obviously I'm biased. This is what I use myself, but Sam Harris's meditation app called Waking Up um, does all of this at an even deeper level. And his own personal philosophy shines through in many places, which I really, really enjoy. Um, so he has two main sections in his application. He has a theory section and a practice section. Practice where you actually meditate, theory where you learn about the concepts. So in his theory section, you can learn about the fundamentals of meditation, as well as the science behind meditation, topics on mind and emotion, like having gratitude, the power of regret, the lessons of death, um, et cetera. And all these things just really can reshape your perspective and make you look at things in life in a totally different way. And I, whenever I'm having a bad day, I always know I can go to this mind and emotion area and listen to one of these. And it honestly, very constantly reshapes my perspective. Um, another thing that, that you can learn about in there, which is more out there, you know, it's about the illusion of having a self or an ego. Um, we'll go more into this later, obviously in the podcast. Um, but this is a very central tenet of Buddhist wisdom. Um, not sure how much I can get into it right now because it's sort of complicated. I will save a lot of that for later. Um, he also talks about free will and how that's compatible and how meditation can give you insights about that. Also another deeper pre-existential topic. Um, and also talks about altruism and doing good in the world, which is very, very central to you know leading a meaningful life. Um, so those are all theory sections, stuff that you can learn about meditation, about his philosophy. Um, and then the practice section, you are actually guided through these meditations that take the lessons from the theory section above and guide you to understand these insights yourself, not just as words and cognition and thoughts in your head, but as a subjective experience that you genuinely go through. And that can be very transformative, but it is also not perfect and very difficult. And I've been meditating for over a year and I still struggle a lot with these insights, you know? So not going to act like it's a perfect end all be all solution. There are a lot of um, imperfections with it, a lot of time that it takes to do. Um, and initially, just as a result of, you know, observing your thoughts and being more aware of your inner world, um, something that happened to Sam Harris and happened to myself is I definitely noticed myself being more self-conscious, especially when I was socializing. So that is just something that you have to be aware of that comes with this. But if you really break through to a lot of the insights, you know, that he can give you here, it is really, really beneficial. Um, but once again, not totally without its flaws. That's really interesting. I, yeah, I've always heard, like people have always told me, oh, you should meditate. But it's really, it's really nice hearing it from someone where it's actually worked. You know what I mean? Like, um, I feel like they're like yoga. And, and I don't mean like yoga in its purest form. I mean, like, um, I mean, yoga done it like 
gyms for like an hour, which is completely fine. But I feel like that's like the idea of meditation. So it was really interesting to hear your perspective. And just before like we, or like um, people start, you know, like we talk about things that you can do for yourself for mental illness. I do have to say um, right out the bat, and I feel comfortable enough saying that I have gone to Miss Salen as a resource and she has been so accommodating and has made me feel so comfortable in sharing my experiences that I feel like had I had not gone to her during these four years that I don't know if high school would have been as enjoyable as it was for me or you know like I feel like um I feel like there is so much you know like I guess I want to say like anxiety coming to people who are uh trusted school officials or you know or like adults because you you either have past experiences with with teachers who haven't really listened or um maybe you had some personal experiences or maybe you don't want your parents to find out. In my case, I, I was very um, hesitant about going to my parents uh, for emotional support just because it was a way I was raised. And having adults like Miss Allen, who was more than eager, able to listen to me and help me help me guide my own emotions and, and going to a few teachers who I really trusted, it just it just it just meant the world to me and it still does and i feel like having that guidance especially in high school before you become an adult is is very cr- crucial to shaping who you are later in life and i would really recommend it if anyone out there is a bit scared or is feeling a little lost um because although taking that first step into her office was very very scary for me i'm so glad i did it Hey, Amrutha, thank you so much for um, just sharing that and being vulnerable um, to share. But I I do want to just encourage people to come and check it out. It really isn't um, something you have to commit to or if you want to just drop by and say hi. Um, And if you're out there now and you are not signed up to come onto campus, you're still doing full remote learning you um, are welcome to contact me and come onto campus just to see me. I am doing that with students. Um, I've loved seeing people back on campus, but if you are feeling like you want to stay remote, that's totally fine. Um, I'm happy to get on a phone call with you or Zoom, um, or you are welcome to come by and drop by and just see my office and even chat for a few minutes um, and ask questions. So no, no big commitment needed, but I really appreciate what you shared. Thank you. Yeah, to iterate, I I do appreciate the honesty and vulnerability. I think that is something that is at the core of kind of the values that we try to imbue um, in participants and listeners being in the podcast. I, I truly do appreciate it. Um, going on to kind of the next topic, I was wondering if we could all kind of go over briefly things that we do to help ourselves, um, just as an example of things that work. Um, for for example, uh, I know that Ben went over meditation. I think that definitely helped him a lot. Personally, I've been trying to get into it, but I've only been doing it for two weeks. And I think that I, I haven't seen any tangible benefits yet, although I'm, I'm still going to be doing it because I, I truly do believe there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, however, I think that at the very minimum, going sitting outside for 10 minutes at the beginning of every day is amazing for you because biologically to work with your circadian rhythm, 
you are supposed to see sun for about 15 minutes when you wake up. Uh, that is kind of the way that you wake up your body in a sense. And, you know, there's a couple other things like, you know, don't have caffeine for at least an hour until after you wake up and things like that. But I know that that's not practical advice. Sometimes you, you can't wait that long when you have important things to do. But I think something that everyone can incorporate in some way or another is in the first hour of waking up, try to be outside for at least 15 minutes. If that means doing a quick workout like jump rope or or running outside or, or just going outside to meditate for 15 minutes. I think that's something that everyone should do. Um, apart from that, I've also been getting into yoga recently. Uh, I know that it's quite corny to be honest, but working on your breathing and working kind of on the flexibility side of things that I think is often ignored when, when working out normally is something that's, um, it's quite, quite helpful. And, uh, I can definitely see a lot of the benefits that, people praise it for especially if i do it consistently for about a week i, I see a lot of benefits so i think that's uh, some examples of things that i do for myself so if everyone else and wants to just jump in that'd be great i can talk about something else that i do it's not clear from my meditation stuff i'm very interested in consciousness in general um so along those lines something that i've done is i've gone to a sensory deprivation tank and in those tanks you pretty much lie down in epsom salt water that is buoyant enough to allow you to float and it's just super relaxing first of all because epsom salt relaxes your body and because all you have to do there is lay down and you are in a room where there are no sounds where when you open or close your eyes it's the exact same so pretty much all there is to do is think and when you're in that place it can lead you to a lot of very deep meditative states trance states and i will talk about one experience that i actually had pretty recently which can lead on to a general larger conversation about things like manifestation, which there are a lot of stupid beliefs about, to be honest, and a lot of irrational beliefs. I think that there is still some validity there. And I'll try to talk about that as I go. Um, but I was in this tank and probably about 40 minutes in, for whatever reason, I started imagining this, this obelisk, right? And for whatever reason, I imagined all of my stress all of my resistance to the current moment, every single negative thing in my life as this obelisk. And then I imagined myself crushing it and into dust and blowing it away, right? That all sounds pretty magical and pretty ridiculous, right? Obviously this is not real. Obviously it's only a figment of my imagination. However, just doing that, that meditative trans state and sensory deprivation tank did make me feel better. And it made me feel a lot more relaxed and a lot, um, less resistant to the present moment. And now, even afterwards, a couple of days, weeks later, if I bring that image back up into my mind and I, in my mind, blow the dust away, I can feel more relaxed again, right? So the imagination of your brain has the ability to change your internal state. Remember recalling past things, um, even things that aren't real, like that obelisk, right? Obviously it's not real, obviously there's no physical reality to that, but just imagining it, just thinking about that did genuinely make, make me feel better. I, I think um, that's honestly quite interesting. I've always been interested in, in sensory deprivation tanks as a method of achieving uh, often psychedelic experiences without actually doing the drug, which is always a win in my, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, before we, before, yeah, before we kind of go into, um, the next section I wanted, I was wondering if anyone else had any kind of novel things that um, they thought worked for them, that are hobbies they still do to this day. 
I gotta say, mine feels way less philosophical than that one. So I don't know. I can't top that one. But um, uh, for me, I (laughs) know you're. (laughs) But um, uh, something that really helps me is just in my head. I'm I'm always like uh, I need to keep. You know, I feel like this is Cupertino bubble mindset. You know, I got to keep my grades up. I just got to keep doing what I'm doing. Keep your head up. I need to get it to an A. And so sometimes we're so into that cycle that we lose sight of things we actually love, you know, lose sight of things that we're not doing for college pad, lose sight of things that we aren't doing for our parents, you know? And so I just sort of let go of everything. Like, sure, I might have a few missing assignments and I'll email and I'll make like a, I'm not encouraging this by any means, please turn in your assignments. But on some days where I'm sort of on top of things and I'm really at my brink, I'll be like, okay, I'm just gonna like have things that I love. And so for me, that means like watching movies without doing my homework on the side, just, just fully watching movies while I'm just like getting lost in something that I had forgotten. Or if I have an anxiety attack or some people, you know, if they have like a panic attack, um, mine are more, more mild. So I can't speak for the extreme cases, but immediately, no matter whatever time it is in the night or whatever time of day it is, I call up someone I know that is there to support me. And the initial thoughts are like, oh, I'm going to bother them. Like, I don't want to, you know, like, I, I don't want to put this on them. I don't want to be a burden to them. But just like making that sudden phone call or um, texting them like, hey, like, I really feel like this right now. Like, and just being honest with them. And if they're, they're there to support you and being honest with yourself in that moment can just help so much. And so that that's like another thing is like, you can seek comfort in other people without depending on them. And that can be beneficial. And that takes risk though, right? To do that. Yeah, it does. But I, I, you have to find the right people, I think, Mm -hmm. or find a good support system, which also takes time. So I understand if it's not a viable option for everyone. Yeah, but I think it's great. I'm that that I think that's a great example of risking, right? Sometimes we talk ourselves out of, oh, you know, I don't want to be a like you said, I don't want to be a burden to them. Um, I don't want to bother them. Um, what will they think? You know, I don't want to be like seen as needy. Um, so sometimes we have to do to take that risk. I, I kind of have these screw it days where I just say, I am. I'm gonna like binge watch something, even though I have, um, emails to respond to, or, um, I'm going to eat that brownie, even though I know I want to eat healthy and cut down on sugar. Um, I think there are times I kind of think of it as self-care where, um, instead of being like for those of, um, us who are just constantly trying to be highly responsible all the time and, um, and good at everything um, and follow up with what everybody expects of us. I think there are times where it's okay to create a pocket of, I'm not going to be responsible right now. I'm going to kind of be irresponsible and I'm just going to take care of myself and do what I want to do. And not for every day of the week, but um, pockets of time where we do that. And I know some people tend to find that late at night, um, and, and stay up late uh, when everybody else has gone to bed and the house is quiet and then they feel like that that's their time. And I think as long as we're in control of that and we're monitoring that and we're choosing that, 
Um, I know sometimes it can get out of hand where staying up a couple nights late and watching movies or YouTube videos or, or, or um, playing video games or chatting with friends turns into not just a couple days, but weeks and, and months. And then we start losing our sleep that I'm not advocating that, but I think there are times where we do have to take time for ourselves and, um, and take good care of ourselves. I like that you all kind of are trying to come up with non, um, oh, just, you know, what everybody says, like, th these are the kinds of things that everybody needs to do. But what you have hit on the, the breathing, the meditation, the mindfulness, um, the healthy living, the focus on sleep, those really are scientifically backed. So they don't sound very sexy to do, but they really are some of the most powerful things that you can do. So if anybody is willing to try, and again, it's it's a, a, a risk. And Pranav, I love that, you know, you were kind of really honest and like, well, you know, I'm not sure that um, meditation is working for me yet, but I'm going to stick with it and commit to it. Um, I think that's great because that's all we can ever kind of do. So I'm glad you opened up that question on what are people trying and what's worked. Um, I run. Um, and I just make it a priority to run every day. And I even run when it rains or when I'm sick. And that's been the thing that kind of steadies me because that's when I, um, I can focus on my breathing. I can get out my stress. I can vent out my anger. I, I do that when I run or I, I process my worries or I, um, think about all the things I have to do and just figure out a plan, but it's a good way for me to start my day, um, by doing something that combines like sunlight, breathing, exercise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think uh, we've definitely spoken a lot about things that people can do for themselves. I think what you said uh, is very accurate. It, it's not sexy, but it's scientifically backed and it works. And I think that's uh, honestly a summarization of almost everything that's available online. And I think it's kind of filtering through that all and just trying out everything for about a period of two weeks and seeing is it helping you or not. With the exception of meditation, I do believe, as mentioned, that it is something that's very long form meditation and yoga are stuff that you have to do for a long time to see the benefits of but yeah definitely i definitely agree with you um so if anyone has any kind of thoughts on things they can do to help themselves would appreciate if we tabled it uh we are already at uh, well over an hour close to two hours and uh, i'm hoping to move on to kind of the, uh, a very large and important section which is non-cliche things you can do to help uh yourself and I think that we did go over a kind of meditation. I believe that that is something that we've well established. However, there are a couple of different things that are kind of one year science fact that um, Roshan and Ben can definitely speak more to as well as I can. Uh, kind of dopamine detoxes, resetting Pavlovian connections for stimuli and boredom, uh, picking up some hobbies, which you've mentioned prior, but we can gloss over it, um, if you feel the need to. Uh, resetting and recognizing your ego and kind of being emotionally aware. So I think let's start with kind of dopamine detoxes. So I'm, uh, yeah, Roshan, would you like to introduce this topic? Yeah, uh, sure. Uh, so dopamine is pretty much a neurotransmitter in your brain, and it is directly associated with the reward uh, system in your brain. 
So when you do something that feel that makes you happy, that feels rewarding, that's pretty much dopamine uh, in your brain that's causing that effect. And so dopamine. So when in a in an environment where there's like we're being overloaded with stimuli, going like going full circle back to social media, news, screens, era, video games, substance abuse, something that uh, overloads your uh, brain and rewires it and strengthen the, strengthens the pathways. You're essentially making it so these activities that you're doing on repeat, they um, they give you like instant reward, a sense of re- uh, rewards. Like uh, for example, social media. It, like as soon as you you can open really quickly, uh, technology is very fast. You'll see instant results to whatever you're intending to do. For example, you click on your post, you'll see the likes instantly. How how people are uh, responding to your picture. And so these type of like instant uh, rewards stimulation makes it makes your brain flood with dopamine when you do these activities. And uh, dopamine, uh, this reward center is directly linked to your hippocampus, which burns into your memory. It makes it creates this memory that associates these activities that cause high dopamine like levels with this feeling of being happy or being or of uh, feeling um, rewarded. And so the next time you're, you're always like, naturally your brain is going to, you're going to cr- uh, crave this uh, dopamine because you want to feel that uh, feeling of happiness. And so every time you do, you're going to, uh, since these memories are burned into your hippocampus, you're constantly going back to the same memory of these, uh, these tasks, which is why you get addicted to screens or substances or other uh, such activities is because they give you so much dopamine and it's burned into your memory. The next time you want dopamine, you're going back and saying, okay, I remember that gave me this, this sort of experience. And now I want the same experience. I'm going to go back to it and do it over and over again. And the more you do it, like I said, uh, the more you do something, the more uh, embedded into your brain that it becomes. So you're hardwiring it more and, and your brain uh, reciprocates to that and says, okay, so he's, we're doing this a lot. It's hardwired in. So now let's decrease how much dopamine we're giving because we want to go back to normal levels, right? So that, so then you're, you're doing the same activity with the same, uh, intent, uh, to the same extent, but you're getting lower levels of dopamine. So now to get the original high that you wanted, the high on dopamine, you got to do it more. So now you're doing the same activity even more. And it's just this like uh, continual effect of just continuous positive feedback of where it's just increasing and increasing and you want to do more and more, which is where addiction starts. And so dopamine detoxes are pretty much taking a step back and taking a time to stay away from these tasks that are high dopamine, that give you high dopamine levels and uh, reorganizing your, uh, your mind so that you feel excited and happy for tasks that might see, that give uh, lower levels of dopamine. For example, uh, tasks that have long-term benefits, like if you study for a test, the long-term, you don't see benefits right away, but the long-term benefit comes later when you actually take the test and get the results. But which is different from things like social media or television, because those rewards are right away, which is why they give you a higher dopamine like uh, level than things like study or education or studying or learning something new because they give you long-term benefits. So a dopamine detox pretty much shuts yourself away from these high dopamine levels. So maybe taking a day or a couple hours of just uh, keeping yourself away from things like screens and uh, go, and that way you're resetting your mind so that it's coming back to accepting these lower levels and you'll feel more encouraged and happier doing uh, tasks that once felt like they weren't giving you enough. So Roshan, are you saying that like um, the, the big dopamine boosters like 
video games, social media to um, take a break from and detox from, but the simpler things like um, talking with a friend or going for a walk in nature, go ahead and still do those and 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 reacclimate your body to the the um, maybe lower level of dopamine. Um, that we get from those kinds of activities that aren't the instant boost, high, high reward, instant reward. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You want to bring yourself back to normal levels with like where you can actually enjoy these once normal activities. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on this topic as well, kind of the idea of resetting couple of connections with stimuli and boredom. I think um, if, if you constantly expose yourself to, to different stimuli as you mentioned then you quickly grow acclimated to always having some stimuli at hand and so you quickly grow to have a negative connotation with boredom i think uh something that, that kind of revolves around resetting pavlovian connections with stimuli and boredom i think for example is meditation but basically just giving yourself pockets to be bored and to accept that as a good thing um, because often it is a good thing to be bored because you you derive a variety of benefits from it, right? You let your mind wander, you kind of come to peace with yourself and your thoughts. And a lot of things that, not to sound repetitive, but you do find in meditation, but you could also find other long form things where it's just you and nature. For example, I don't know, doing a jump rope or, or going for a run without music or a podcast or anything. And um, yeah, so just giving yourself pockets to be bored, or as you mentioned, to do dopamine detox and to kind of come back to terms with, what are natural levels of, of stimuli. It's definitely something that everyone should do, especially when they do feel overwhelmed. I think it's, um, a lot of these sound really good in theory. They're hard to implement, but if you ever do find yourself getting to the point where you can, you are considering it, then it is definitely something that you you should do because um, yeah, it, the, the benefits are unparalleled. Um, so yeah, on that topic, um, I believe that Ben had a couple of things that he wanted to go for kind of structurally things that um, I'd like to go into before we talk more about ego and emotional awareness. Yeah. So I have like a whole list of uh, little stress relief things. Um, I guess the first one that I will say, which is a tool I learned from Andrew Hoverman's podcast. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit. So Andrew Hoverman is a Stanford professor of neurobiology. And he has a podcast where he tries to explain a lot of neurobiological things in a simplified way to people, um, which is by itself, you know, when you can look more objectively at things going on in your brain and understand that the reason why you're feeling how you're feeling isn't necessarily because of some flaw of yourself, but that it is 100% derived from the physical state of the atoms in your brain and nervous system. It helps make you feel better about things happening to you because you know that at the end of the day, it is all, you know, a part of your brain and not necessarily something inherent to yourself that can't be changed like we talked about earlier very plastic brain um in a lot of ways so the tool that he gave on his podcast which can be used on the go at any time to deal with stress whenever is called the physiological side and this is a breath that activates the parasympathetic nervous system to rapidly calm you down um very quickly so it is two breaths in the first one longer than the second, and then a short breath out. So I'll try to do it right now. Hopefully you can hear me, I'm not really sure. Um, but, right, 
So two breaths in, one breath out. And this activates your parasympathetic nervous system to calm you down. It's probably the best breath that um, there is to do that. I probably can't give enough justice. Here's a YouTube video up on it. You can easily look that up if you want to learn more about it. Um, so back along the sort of meditation train, some of the insights you can learn with that is that one important thing to do is practicing gratitude. And gratitude, thankfulness for all that you have is a very easy emotion to invoke for yourself. And I will explain how. There are two really easy things that you can do. First of all, you can think of all the bad things that could happen to you, but haven't happened yet. And how much that, if you were in the position where the bad thing happened to you, you would yearn and wish to be back in the exact position that you are right now, right? So think about if your parents died, think about if you're diagnosed with cancer, think about if you got in a car crash and had a traumatic brain injury, right? Thinking about these things and putting yourself in the position of that person, if that were to happen, can make no matter what situation you're in, seem better if you look reflexively back at yourself from there and see how really great of a position you are in that, but you just take it for granted because things aren't perfect yet, right? And so following that same sort of logic, you can also think about all the bad things that currently are happening to other people in the world but haven't happened to you, and how thankful you are to be in the position that you are in and not in their position, right? So you guys, and probably this isn't the same for everybody, you know, but I think it's pretty, if you're listening to this podcast, it's pretty likely that you have these four things I'm about to say, right? You weren't born into a war-torn country. You were not born into a famine. You were not born into a place without access to water. And you were not born without education. These are simple things that if you were in that position, you would wish so much to be back where you are right now. And just thinking about these things and playing out these imaginative, these imagination, um, imaginative, um, imaginatory scenarios, it can really give you a feeling of gratefulness for where you are right now. Um, and there are many, many scientific studies talking about the benefits of gratitude and how it makes you even the simplest things in a more positive, appreciative light. All I have to do is look those up. But I do have to say, um, I do agree. Like gratitude does go a long way, but I feel like some people, whenever they come to people with like, like things that they're feeling, like maybe it's depression, anxiety, or, you know, their, their brain does that for them. Like it, it, it spirals a bit for them. And, and the oftentimes the common response is like, you have food, you have shelter. And it's, it's sort of like, what are you it's, or like the common response is like what are you depressed for you have all these things and so I totally agree with you it's really good to be grateful in life but for some if for some people I, I just kind of want to say like even if you have all, all these things it's okay to be feeling what you are feeling and absolutely it, yeah you know it's totally like agree. um don't compare your trauma to other it's, people's trauma for, for anyone listening, yes. like to like diminish your trauma and be like, Oh, maybe it's not that big of an issue. Like, I feel like everything should be like, if you need help, you should get it. If you're in a contracted state of mind, right. You're in an anxious state of mind. You're in a bad place. This is, these are a simple mental scenario that you can play out, you know, to make yourself feel better. doesn't mean it's going to solve all your problems. There are still problems that we're going to have, and they're very important to confront. And this is not at all to downplay that. So yeah, I guess I'll get into the other stress things that I have to talk about. So a lot of the time when you are stressed, you get tunnel vision, right? Your awareness is only focused on one thing, the one thing that is causing you the anxiety, and you're just closed off to the rest of the world. You lose track of where you are. You only focus on this one thing. And it turns out that if you 
consciously stopping tunnel vision and expand your awareness to what is around you, right? You hear the sounds around you. You look, you even see what's in your peripherals. You feel what your body is like. It takes away from the stress because the stress is internal. And when you open your awareness to focus more externally, the internal stress has less of a grasp on you. And all, actually, um, all right, let me just do one more preface for the next, I'm about to say next. So a lot of the time stress is in your brain and like um, Mrs. Salem, Dr. Salem talked about, um, when you go out and do things like and put stress in your body, you can take away from the stress in your brain, right? Going on runs, exercising, those are all great for your mental health. There are also two other ways um, that you can go about this, which is through Wim Hof's method. He is a world record breaker for many different things with the cold and with physical accomplishments and um, really just great at doing these things. He developed this entire method behind it. And so Wim Hof, what the Wim Hof method is that does is that it puts stress onto your body. And when that happens, it can take away from mental stress. So the two things that you do in Wim Hof is first you do power breathing, which is when you take in as much air as you can and then let go, take as much air as you can and let go. And you do this for two minutes about, and then you hold your breath for as long as you can. And that might sound pretty daunting, to be honest. My siblings think it's very daunting and make fun of me for it. Um, but really it can take away from your stress um, because it puts stress in your body and that takes away from your mental stress and you feel great and feel recharged after it. And the same goes for taking cold showers or being in the cold in general. These two things that take that put body that put stress on your body can really help out um, relieving your mental stress. And combining this with my past point about being tunnel visioned, if you do these things and expand your awareness at the same time, it especially can help train you to be um, take away from mental stress. And this is more of like a brute force force method to take away from mental stress, and it really can be effective, especially in like short term scenarios. It really takes away from your stress. So yeah. That was my little list of things. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really agree with um, the the kind of cold showers and other things because like it's been shown that short international like intentional bursts of acute stress can help reduce chronic stress, especially mental fatigue. Uh, for example, I sometimes take cold showers. Um, I just do that normally just because I enjoy it. And I think going out of your comfort zone is good. But sometimes if I'm really stressed, which thankfully isn't quite often, I will just take freezing showers until I can't breathe. And I think this kind of goes under what you're saying. Like it, these kind of activities help mitigate chronic stress, even though they're a form of acute stress on your body because they do take away, plus, you know, it is quite therapeutic to be honest. So yeah, definitely. I, I agree with a lot of what you said. And uh, building on top of the breathing method, it's also been shown that exhales of seven seconds and longer put you out of a fight or flight mood for example, if you ex if you're like really tense or something and you need to make a calm decision under pressure, good way to ground yourself is with the breathing uh, techniques as you mentioned. You know, two inhales, one exhale, and then after a while, that start exhaling for like seven seconds or, or longer, and it's quite hard. And it, you end up kind of doing like a, a stomach vacuum, like a pseudo stomach vacuum, but um, it definitely works. Um, I've used it myself before, so yeah. I wanted to go briefly on to resetting and recognizing ego. It is not a very huge topic. Um, I, I only have a little bit to speak about it. I'm sure Ben may have some more, but basically I think it's very important to recognize that the ego is a sense of self that attaches itself to things that you have that other people don't or vice versa. It's like, it constantly seeks superiority or if you're worried about yourself or your pessimistic inferiority, 
it never feels at ease or fulfilled. And that's because it's just an image of who you are and as such, it's not real. Uh, ultimately, the ego and the essence of ego is identification you assign to yourself based on your recurrent thoughts. For example, if a certain day you're feeling quite elevated because you just achieved something, your ego is going to be quite lifted versus the next day if, for example, you didn't get that job offer or something, you're gonna, your ego is going to be in the dumps. I think kind of the volatility of ego um, is a good signal to yourself that you shouldn't take it too seriously at all times. Uh, you need to step back and recognize that these are just thoughts. You know, you're not these thoughts. Uh, I think a good principle is to let your ego guide you, but and you can let it push you, but don't let it define who you are. For example, if you're feeling down in the dumps, use that as a motivator to work harder. And if you and if you disachieve something, well, you should always keep in mind that your success is most often a product of your actions and not a product of your personality or your luck or some predestined greatness. Um, really, it's just, you gotta keep working hard. And I think, uh, yeah, most religions point to realizing transcendent dimension of who you are. As you mentioned prior, Buddhism definitely has a lot of tenets on this. Uh, for example, it speaks to sunyata, like emptiness and spaciousness, the essence of who you are. Uh, Christianity speaks of the kingdom of the heavy, the dissolution of the ego and the embrace and embrace of pure bliss and vast spaciousness. I think the kind of dis dissolution of who you are yourself and kind of all dimensions is something quite interesting. I think something that you could achieve through um, uh, flotation, uh, you know, deprivation, sorry, sensory deprivation tanks, as you mentioned prior, psychedelic experiences, Kundalini yoga, and things like that. And something that a lot of people look to. You could also just achieve it through a form of enlightenment, um, which you could achieve through intense meditation, uh, you know, Buddhist practices and things like that. So I think that's something that um, everyone should hope to do at least once in their life, to have their ego completely dissolved and to kind of come to terms with the difference between soul and mind. That makes sense. It, it sounds quite spiritual, but um, I think when you, when you kind of come to experience like that, you will definitely see it yourself. Um, yeah, so Ben, do you have anything else kind of on this topic or Roshan or Amut, anyone really? Um, yeah, there are a lot of meditative perspectives on this stuff, as you talked about. Um, if you want to learn more about that, Sam Harris is a great place to go. Um, but we'll talk about, about a couple of things. So first of all, our thoughts, which is what creates our ego, right? Because all our ego is, is a story that we tell about ourselves. It's a constant story that is being flooded in by our thoughts uncontrollably every single moment. Um, and in our thoughts, there is a bias towards negativity. And I will explain why this makes sense. So evolutionarily, right, there is no need to focus to remember, to recall, to focus on the positives because a good thing happened and we don't need to change it. We don't need to edit it. It is what it is. And we are very content with how it went. But there is an evolutionary need to focus on the negatives because they're what we want to change. And this is why we replay social memories to think of a better way we could have done something, seem less awkward, or we replay conversations and they could think of things we could have said to get our point across better and win the argument, et cetera. So just based off of this fact um, is a good indicator to not take your thoughts so seriously because they do have a bias towards being negative and make us forget about all the good things happening in our lives. Um, and once again, these thoughts, our ego, all they are really is a story. And this story is very flimsy. They can never ever perfectly represent reality. 
they are the best guess that our humble brains can make about the world around us. Um, and we simply aren't intelligent enough for it to be for it to perfectly represent reality. And we don't want to be, to be quite frank. There is a psychological disorder called hyperthymesia. And people with this disorder remember almost everything from their life in great detail. And these people have a much harder time living a happy life because they can relive any terrible experience from the past at any moment. So at the end of the day, it is a good thing that for us, things fade out of memory slowly and that the story is not so reliable because it allows us to question stories that we tell about us about ourselves and realize at the end of the day that they are, all they are is a story about the past that is no longer here anymore, except for in the memories that are stored in our brainwaves. And every single day we have a new opportunity to be, to begin again and to be the person that we want to be. So my recommendation, the recommendation of most people with ego stuff is that even if you won't fully let go of the story, at least loosen the grip that it has on you. Or to be quite frank, create your own story that you like better. And that is what cognitive reappraisal is. If you want to look up that psychological term. Um, yeah, yes, that's all I have to say. I could say more, but I took a lot of just go like more meditation route. I'd probably said enough about that so far. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. On the topic of cognitive reappraisal, it's something that I was reading into uh, prior, and it's quite interesting, you know, kind of recognizing these negative patterns and, and changing it to one that's more effective. I think that's also one that has been shown by a couple of different books, frankly, I've forgotten which ones, but um, I read them a while ago, kind of on how to incorporate healthy habits. For example, you want to change your identity um, to be healthy. For example, instead of saying every day I'm going to work out, I'm going to avoid, you know, uh, my morning donut and, and Dunkin' Donuts coffee or whatever it is that's that could be the unhealthy thing in your life instead you say I'm a healthy person as a healthy person I make these healthy choices and you change your identity fundamentally I think that's something that um humans human and humans and our identity is quite malleable I think that's something that you could definitely use to your advantage so that's also another you know kind of interesting example um, of something you could do Does anyone else have any other thoughts on this topic? If not, I think we can move on briefly to emotional awareness, although frankly, I think we've covered more or less everything. Uh, yeah. I just want to say something really quick. I don't mean to oversimplify um, what Ben was saying, because I think um, what he brought out was really just fascinating and again, science-based um, information. And that's, that's really good and powerful. Um, but a simple way to kind of do the ego checking is, um, you know, another thing we really recommend um, that's good for everybody to do is just um, volunteer or, or find a way to be of service to somebody else who um, is in need. And that's a way of checking our ego, um, practicing gratitude. Gratitude oftentimes comes out of times where when we think we're helping somebody else, we are actually getting more in return. And um, that increases dopamine levels, um, but it gets us outside of ourselves and doing something different, finding meaning, figuring out what's most important to us and does a little bit of kind of cognitive reorganization in that too. And it turned it in, in that we, we decenter ourselves, we center on somebody else and um, there's just so much beauty and, um, and good things all around for both, you know, the person who's helping and the person who's receiving, because it really 
comes down to an interaction of, I think what we were meant to do again, that going back to that kind of connection, but, but in a way that gets outside of ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I can go into a little bit about manifestation and stuff because I sort of hinted at it earlier. What I believe about it is that, you know, we all have these lenses that we see through the world and um, that we see the world through, sorry. Um, and manifestation can change those lenses for the positive, right? So it'll change your mind to be more positive, but it doesn't change anything outside of your mind. But the reason that it might seem like it changes things out of your mind is that when your mind is more positive and you see the world through this lens, the world appears more positive, even if it's the exact same, right? So this can very much, very easily change your mindset. However, there are a lot of people out there who say like, oh, I'm going to manifest the, this sports team to score a goal right now, right? And that is just ridiculous. Like the, your brain waves aren't going to reach this sports team. I'm sorry to tell you, they will not change anything except for what's going on in your brain. They will not change the outside world. But that doesn't mean that the fact that it can change your brain, can change what's going on the inside, isn't very powerful and can't really reshape your perspective. Yeah, I think um, putting things out there in a positive light for yourself definitely does go a long way. Yeah, definitely. Like, especially with those like astrology stuff, like it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's like, obviously, if you believe that you're a Scorpio and that these, you know, characteristics are a part of who you are and you start like making that like stuff go into your subconscious right like that's how you're gonna act like that's like a fact like if you believe you are one way then you will start acting that way but like look at it objectively like when you were born the alignment of the stars do you think that the alignment of your stars affected you more than the people around you right like what what electromagnetic waves what forces of the universe and the alignment of the world and the stars that were in the sky when you were born came over to you and made you have these certain traits that can never be changed like that is just there's a lot of false stuff in this area I agree. it's very hard to discern what's real and what's not real all right great well i think um we've more or less kind of reached a consensus on a lot of these topics i'm, I'm quite glad to see that all the viewpoints have been shared if you have anything that you believe is very very important um, just open the floor one last time one piece of advice is uh i think just don't don't ever take something for face value. Make sure you, like you, like you research and you understand it really well for yourself before you start accepting something. Um, it can be any any aspect of life. It's just don't take something that you hear and just accept it to be true. Make sure you do your own research and you, you get and gather the, inform the right information to make that statement and accept that statement. Yeah, so at the end of the day, a lot of mental health problems won't be fixed in one single day, right? It all starts with the first step. And if you listen to this podcast, it means you're already moving in the right direction. So now it's up to you to continue with some of the tools and advice we gave. It's a journey and it's not one that's going to come without setbacks. But if you set yourself off in the right direction with the motivation to get better and a curiosity to learn about the ways to do so, it's only a matter of time until you reach a place that you're happy with. And if I could give one final piece of advice, um, I would say to not try to do it all yourself and make sure that you have some help along the way. So good luck. Thank you for listening to the Prospector Podcast. Subscribe to be notified when new episodes are released. Find our website at chsprospector.com and follow us on Instagram at chsprospector. Until next time, stay home and stay tuned.